Well, this morning when I got up and had my coffee, I knew I had this interview lined up. I knew we were going to be talking about business and entrepreneurialism. I didn't know we'd start talking about privilege and non-linear journeys towards objectives. Like our two previous podcasts on Monday and Tuesday, there's some wisdom here to be mined by this guest. So I encourage you to sit back, pour yourself a nice big old cup of herbal tea, strap in, enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Shift. I'm John Hagen. On today's show, we have Andrew Goldner, CEO of Palo California's Growth X. Am I right on that? Palo, well, Palo Alto, it, California? We, I founded it with some people while I was living in Palo Alto, and they were in San Francisco. Uh, we invest in rising cities, and so now, even though we founded it in the valley, none of us live in the valley. <laughs> okay. And so it's, it, we have a decentralized fund where we don't have a home office, where we're, we are where our partners are. Oh, that is so cool, hey? Yeah. You know, and I think it, it, it's interesting because when COVID hit and we've, you know, we realized as Alberta Innovates that a lot of us can work, you know, from a, a hybrid setup, home offices, it's really become kind of the way to go now. It, it, it and, and by the way, I mean, for what we do and for founders, we think it's been the way to do it for a long time. You know, one of the first core right. beliefs we had when we started GrowthX was founders shouldn't have to leave their homes to build a great company. Why are they moving away from their families and their communities, the relatively low cost, the high standard of living, to move to the most expensive rat race in America just right. so they could be close to their capitalist? Right. Didn't yeah. make any sense. The The pull is still strong to the valley, but I think COVID accelerated it also helped decouple capital and geography. And so I think more people are giving themselves permission to build great companies in Edmonton. Why do they have to be in Silicon Valley? Especially when they're doing things where Edmonton has a, an advantage such as AI. Right. Yeah, no kidding. Let's, let's step back a little bit now and, and tell me about GrowthX. Sure. It's Genesis, what you guys do. And, and yeah, the business model and that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the true genesis was a Caltrain ride I was on from my home in Palo Alto to San Francisco. My marbles were still a bit jumbled because I had returned to the United States from about seven years in Asia. And I was just trying to figure out what I was going to do. Um, and I just had this noticing. It just occurred to me on the Caltrain that if you know how to build products and you start a company, they call you a founder. Mm-hmm. But if you know how to sell products and you start a company, they call you a non-technical founder. Oh, okay. And it's not meant as a compliment. It was definitely a second-class status of citizen, the salesperson versus the builder, the coder. Oh. And it just struck me um, as um, something that really needed to be uh, delved into because I was raised to believe that it ain't dog food unless until I see a dog eating it. (laughs) That's when it becomes dog food, right? Nothing happens until someone sells something. Right. Yeah. Mark, Mark Andreessen had famously blogged that software was eating the world. Mm-hmm. And I think what he was talking about is what we refer to as the age of applied technology. Uh, the, the complexity of technology is reduced. The cost of it is reduced. The availability of people who have been trained and have experience building and deploying it has increased rapidly. And so differentiation for most founders doesn't come from features and functions. It comes from actually commercializing it, getting it into the hands of customers, and growing that way. 
And so along that journey, having those thoughts and then beginning to bump into people like my co-founder, Max, who mm-hmm. shared a worldview with me, um, you know, we, we, founded, we founded GrowthX as a venture fund because the idea was if, if we could solve the most difficult problem for a founder before we invested, wouldn't that give us the information we needed to select the better investments? And wouldn't we have earned a seat at that table to get selected to be the investor through that kind of process? And that really was the origin of GrowthX is let's, let's look at rising cities mm-hmm. um, so founders don't have to leave their homes to build great companies. And let's focus on solving the sales problem as a means to select and earn the right to invest in great founders. So now when you talk about helping those those businesses kind of, uh, you know, before you dive in and invest, but helping them build their, uh, their, their approach, their mm-hmm. business plans, I yep. assume, that's, that strikes me as very innovative. Well, it's certainly at the time was a very, very different approach to venture capital. And, mm-hmm. and, and frankly, we're still a, a bit of an outlier in terms of our focus on helping founders to make money instead of helping them raise money. Right. I think too many accelerators are focused on helping founders to raise money. They equate investor readiness with a good story pitched well, when it really is the bottom-up business building of go-to-market that matters. Um, you know, colleges and universities around your country and mine um, are awash in computer science degrees, but very few of them even have a single credit-bearing course on entrepreneurial selling. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so it's no wonder that the empirical data has now shown that the literally the single largest by far reason why founders fail um, before they raise their Series A is no market need. Now, what's really interesting about that is you know, I think mainstream media and the people that are doing that uh, research and putting out that data have a bit of a surface headline. You know, no market need is the mm-hmm. reason why founders fail. And I again, I think that makes for a good headline. But we've gone we've gone a lot deeper. And the reality is, it's not that there isn't a market need. Founders are solving problems in interesting ways, but they're wandering the desert to find product market fit. And so they're running out of money before they fit with the market need. Certainly, sometimes there's no market need. But most of the time when we work with founders and we say it doesn't work out, it's not because there was a market need. In fact, most of the time, it's that there are so many different market needs, so many different use cases, so many different customer types that actually could potentially benefit from the technology mm-hmm. that founders end up dying of overeating and not starvation. Oh, it's that they're trying to sell to too many people, uh, some of whom aren't qualified, some of whom who don't have the problem as much of as a priority, some of them who don't feel it as acutely, some of the just a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And so, interestingly enough, again, back to that headline of most founders fail not because of the product features, but because of no market need, it's, it's, a, it's a market problem, but it's, it's not necessarily no market need. It's that they haven't found the market need before they ran out of money, or they're trying to serve too many market needs, and therefore they run out of money. Okay. L- help me understand, uh, 
if you will, this whole idea of someone comes up with an idea mm-hmm. or a technology mm-hmm. and they become very passionate mm. about that technology and they think this, man, I just built this thing, the world's going to love it. Yeah. But maybe the world doesn't love it. They, but they're so married to their technology. How do you, does this kind of fit into play into what you're talking about? Oh, market sure. need and these different. Sure. And, okay. and, and I think that's, that is often how the journey of the entrepreneur does begin. Mm-hmm. Um, our perspective is where the journey should begin is um, who are the people we're going to serve and what problem are we going to solve? It does often start with the technology that I want to build, the product that I want to build, the software that I want to code, the interesting hardware. Um, it is often not coming from a place of the problem. And, and even when it does initially start out, one of the heuristics of a great founder, in our view, is a founder who's intimate with a problem. They don't just think something is interesting to do. Mm-hmm. A classic example is... I work at a company. Uh, part of the, my job is to solve a certain problem. I'm trying to solve this problem. I mean, I even have a budget, and I'm, I'm trying to find a vendor to help me solve the problem. And nobody is really solving it. And why is it so difficult to find it? And when I do get it, it's really just not working really well. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to go leave because someone needs to go solve this problem. So I'm going to leave the company, and I'm going to go solve this problem because I know it's a problem. I had the problem professionally. I tried to solve it. I couldn't with the existing choices. So now I'm going to go start a company. It's a great heuristic. The challenge is almost from that point forward, what the person tends to focus on is the features and the functions of the of the product. Okay. And they start to get farther and farther away from the needs of the people that they're going to ultimately serve. Um, and that's where we find um, there is the the gap, right? And so, mm-hmm. for instance, in the language of Alberta Innovates and, and why they brought us here is looking at the ecosystem for founders in Alberta and being thoughtful, intentional about mapping what's here and what's missing and filling those gaps. That's exactly what Alberta Innovates has been doing. They recognize the commercialization gap. Founders were certainly being enabled through computer science degrees and coding boot camps to build products. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, in this age, we have low-code, no-code tools, code repositories, software development frameworks, things that make it easier even for the so-called non-technical founder to build their product. And then there's this massive emphasis on helping them understand how to raise venture capital, how to put together a pitch deck, how to do well at a demo day, but there's this gap on getting it into the hands of the customers who are willing to pay for it. Right. So now is this then where GrowthX will step in, help those companies start to build that knowledge, that approach to get to that? Uh... That's exactly right. And that Alberta Invates is a, is a wonderful example, and, 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 it's, and it's a privilege of ours uh, to be a partner. Um, that is kind of our M.O., around the world, we'll get invited into a rising ecosystem by a forward-thinking economic development agency like Albert Innovates. It might also be an accelerator, a tech hub. It may be even local investors. But we will get invited in not to just bring our capital. We will get invited in not as a venture capital fund. 
we will get invited in as experts who have programmatized and systematized a way to help founders go to market and find product market fit and then get ready for scale. And of course, it's during that work mm -hmm. where we build the relationships, we learn what we need, where we like to say help is our due diligence. And then, of course, our venture capital follows. And so that really is, you know, our bat signal. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, our bat signal is not just our expertise because that's not enough nowadays. You have to have a platform, especially if you're doing it to look for venture investments. That means we have to do it at scale because it's a small cohort of people who are able to be successful entrepreneurs. It's even a smaller cohort of people who are venture capable entrepreneurs. You know, the, the kind of the quick way to describe that is someone who can take nothing and create at least a billion dollars of value in under 10 years. That is an extraordinary thing to do that the vast majority of the people aren't capable of doing, right. don't want to put the time and energy into doing. And so we obviously have to have a large pool of opportunities in order to earn our way and select the ones that are going to be that power law, that far outlier who creates that kind of value for my investors, mm -hmm. which is which is how I get to continue being to be a, a venture capitalist. Okay, and so um, it is. Um, I you know over the course of GrowthX since we founded it in 2015, it has been a journey to first take our expertise and 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 create a system out of it, uh, so that we could take the experiences that we've had doing it and the knowledge that we have from doing it uh, and systematize it so that we can organize it in a way that we can also enable and empower other people to do it. And, and that's where it started. And then along the journey, it was, okay, how do we start doing this in a way that's more scalable? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we carbon-based life forms don't scale very well. And so that is when we built our platform we call it MXP online. MXP stands for Market Acceleration Program. It's what we've always called the program that we've run since we founded it, the okay. Market Acceleration Program. And so when we, we built a web-based version of it, we got creative and said, how about MXP online? <laughs> <laughs> it works. And, and, and that is now a web-based um, library and set of playbooks um, that are the knowledge uh, the skills, the tools for founders to understand what the sequence of steps are to product market fit, how to take each one of them, have the reference points from best, best practices and case studies to mm -hmm. take those steps, and then have a trained coach in the weeds alongside of you so that they're there with you while you are entrepreneuring and that's where the real revenue results come from. And that's what enabled us to now do this at scale around the world. That's really cool. So here, walk me through it. Yeah. I'm an entrepreneur listening to this podcast. You've talked about MXP online. We haven't officially uh, mentioned the Alberta Innovates Revenue Accelerator, yeah. but I'm assuming that's, a, and we'll flesh that out a bit more. Yeah. But people see that and they go, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to get involved. I've also got a technology development advisor from Alberta Innovates. Yes. Maybe I'm working with... Uh, you know, a, one of the accelerators or pre-accelerator, 
what should they do? Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a really great question. Again, I, I hold Alberta Innovates out as an example around the world, um, and I'm not just saying that because I'm doing the podcast here in Edmonton. Um, uh, as a shining example, again, of an ecosystem that's being very thoughtful and intentional, and as an economic development agency that's being courageous, because economic development and government and politics there's a real push necessarily to help as many people as you can. But that creates a necessary tension with entrepreneurism, especially venture entrepreneurism, because at some point you have to start really just backing the winners and push and push and push them to go. Now, more people need to have opportunity to participate. There are excluded people that we need to be affirmative and intentional about activating and welcoming and empowering to be a part of the entrepreneurship ecosystem. Women, people of color, indigenous, previously excluded people. So when I say that it's not for everybody, that's not what I'm talking about. Because right. <laughs> when diversity makes everything better. The data proves it. I actually happen to think that it's just a more enjoyable existence. But that's important. But from that pool of open and diverse people who want to be entrepreneurs at some point you do have to start making decisions and and continue to put more resources behind those that are continuing to to move forward and that includes the programs that are being funded not everybody can be funded and what i've seen albert innovates do that very few other ecosystems have been doing is making courageous decisions based on their data about what's working and not working um and, and funding only things that are working. And I know that that sounds obvious, but again, when you're when you're a political body, when you're when you're answering to a government, um, there are other factors that matter that necessarily need to be considered. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what I've seen Alberta Innovates do, and this to your question, is really map the ecosystem from idea to exit. And begin to be intentional about making sure that founders are resourced along that entire relay race. So that at each leg of the relay, there are trained resources available to enable that founder. And to make sure that when that leg of the race is run, there's not a gap. So nobody's sitting there and waiting. Right. And there's not a baton that gets dropped. Mm -hmm. There's someone there who's poised and ready and who is more capable at that next leg of the relay to perform that leg of the race. And so you've talked about the pre-accelerators, you've talked about the um, the, uh, the coaching resources that, um, that, uh, that are available, yep. uh, the scale-up programs, uh, you know, the revenue accelerator that we run. Those are examples of the uh, continuum of resources that Alberta Innovates has now thoughtfully made available to founders to meet the founders where they are, enable and empower them um, to to more successfully at a at a, a a more rapid pace and at a higher success rate, complete the leg of the journey they're on, and have someone meeting them at the next leg of the journey. And so, for for founders in Alberta, they're very fortunate because there are so many resources that will meet them where they are. And that's really the most important thing is founders need to determine where they are in their journey. You know, use Alberta Innovates as a resource to help match up 
where they are in the leg of their journey to the most appropriate resources. Um, the early stage of bringing innovation to market um, from idea, you know, through exit follows a, a fairly particular set of um, steps and base camps to get to the, the top. Um, and so whether you're an idea stage founder, even a student at a university um, working on something that may come through tech transfer, mm -hmm. um, whether you've tinkered and have come up with something and are now just starting to think about maybe I'll quit my job and do this full time, you know, whether you're now starting to focus on, you know, what are the other things that I need to be a great founder? Um, there are resources to meet you at each step of that journey in Alberta. The Alberta Innovates Revenue Accelerator is there to fill the commercialization gap between those that have uh, what, what's colloquially referred to as a minimally viable product. Mm -hmm. We like to call it just some unit of value. Okay. Um, and those that have product market fit. And that's exactly where we exist. So you have a product, you do not have product market fit. And we, we can talk about that too, because product market fit is not a feeling. And it's a, and it's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in ecosystems and mm -hmm. very few people define it. So we can certainly talk later about the objective definition of that. But we were brought in specifically to work with founders who have maybe gone through a pre-accelerator or maybe they've just simply accelerated themselves to the point that they're now ready to begin commercialization or the notion of customer development and market development. Typically with innovation and bringing it to market, the four phases generally are product development, customer development, market development, and sales and marketing. Prior to having product market fit, you're actually not doing sales because sales is the pursuit of revenue for the purpose of profit. Before you have product market fit, you're doing market development and customer development, which is the pursuit of revenue for the purpose of learning. Ah. Because learning precedes revenue. Sales and marketing, by definition, is scale. You hire a VP of sales when you have the playbook, because VPs of sales execute playbooks. They don't write the playbooks, right? And so this is a classic mistake that founders make is they think sales, they think they need to do sales, they think they need to be scaling, mm -hmm. they need to be going out, they need to be filling the top of their funnel, they need to be running email campaigns, they need to be all over LinkedIn. And the challenge is they, they, what they're creating is a signal to noise problem because they haven't defined their signal. And so they're out there and what they're actually doing is filling their calendar with a bunch of noise. And that's what practically ends up having them run out of money before they find product market fit and that market need is because they actually filled up all their valuable time and right. used their valuable money much less effectively and efficiently because they're dealing with a lot of noise where they should just be focused on the signal. And so you think of customer market development as defining your signal. That that is absolutely fascinating. It makes me you know you talk about you'll you'll run out of money, you'll yeah. run out of. Uh, uh, time, mm -hmm. patience, uh, mental well-being. <laughs> All of those things. Yeah. My, um, my partner, Max, has a phrase that I've picked up because I love it, and that is that um, if you're a founder, by definition, you are the bouncer at the hottest nightclub in the world, and your nightclub is your calendar. Right. you got to work that velvet rope. You can't just let anybody in that nightclub. right? you got to be very thoughtful about that. And so many founders 
aren't that thoughtful about it. They really mm-hmm. need to protect their valuable time and their calendar because everything communicates. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, you know, what's good for running a business and building it of enduring value is the same things that us VCs are looking for. And when a founder is wasting a lot of their time, mm-hmm. it's a signal to us that they're also going to waste our money. Let's pause for some station identification. I am an innovator, industry disruptor, business owner, problem solver, pioneer, creator, futurist. I am an Alberta entrepreneur, taking industry to the next level with new technology and innovation. Alberta Innovates is here to help you on your journey with programs for funding, connections, supports, expanding to new markets, investors, and more. Come talk to us. And we're back with part two of our interview with Andrew Goldner. And again, everything communicates. And so when you're running around throwing spaghetti at a ceiling, hoping some of it will stick, why should we believe you're not going to use our capital for that same inefficient purpose? And again, then you're going to run out of money and then come back to us before you have, you know, what you need for that next leg of your journey. So the Alberta Innovates Revenue Accelerator is all about helping founders understand the sequential steps that every founder who's bringing innovation to market needs to take in order to get to the place where they're ready for sales and marketing, where they have that source of signal where they have market-informed, if not confirmed, market-informed data that backs up their hypothesis about where in their market they're going to focus to get the most use out of the limited resources they have now to continue getting to that next base camp to ultimately scale to the top of that mountain. Mm-hmm. And so, um, again, you know, traditionally, you know, that's customer development, which then leads to market development. And it's industry and sector agnostic. Um, the path to product market fit is, is, does not matter what your product or your market is. The sequential steps you take are exactly the same. Now, depending on how capitally intense your initiative is, it may elongate your path to product market fit. Mm-hmm. You may be doing hardware, which is more capitally intense than software. You may be doing something that has some regulatory hurdles that you need to get through before you're even legally permitted to commercialize. It won't change the steps that you're taking. It'll just delay them or elongate them, but you're going to take the exact same steps. And so what we've done is just sequence those steps, and we enable and empower founders to understand what they are and how to take them. Um, and and the and the the framework is that combination of platform, mm-hmm. so that founders can do a lot of self educating, right? So that when they come to the intense coaching, it produces real results. So you're not just stepping into what we like to joke as a mentor chat roulette session, which so many accelerators rely on. Okay, this is not just you know an ex- a successful entrepreneur wandering in the room saying, hey, what do you want to talk about today? They're not here to motivate you, right? They're not here to show you how smart they think they are. 
They're here to work on a very specific step that they know you're at in the sequence to product market fit. They want to know the work you've done so far to verify and collect the data you need and the learnings you need to verify that you're ready to take that next step. They're there to help you work through the challenges, to give you more reference points so as a founder you start to know what working looks like. Mm -hmm. Because that's one of the problems when you're going to market as a founder. When your product doesn't work, you know it. Right, yeah. The market doesn't often uh, communicate as clearly um, because it's humans, it's not technology. Mm -hmm. And so um, helping founders understand what working looks like enables them to then put their confidence and ultimately their conviction behind decisions. And that ultimately is what makes the best founders. It is the, the greatest opportunities that we read about and we see the movies made of and venture are not one or two large judgment calls. They are a series of micro judgment calls that have been made along the way by the founders and their teams and their advisors that ultimately add up to those big wins. And that's hard when you're a founder. There is no answer key. Right. And you're super yeah. passionate and your life is on the line and you care so much and your ego. And and like, I don't know if this is what I should be doing. I don't know if this is w what should be happening. And the confidence and conviction to make those judgment calls along the way is ultimately what makes the best type of founder. And so it's the, it's the coaching on top of the platform. Um, and that's a big part of what we do. Um, and we're proud to do in Alberta because it's not just growth X and a team of experts that swoop in. Mm -hmm. We're creating local capacity. You know, our coaches, you know, including Rick. Yep. You know, he coached during the pilot project that we ran. That's how we got to know him. I mean, he's amazing. But yep. he'll tell you, even with all of his experience and all of his success, Having the platform and having the program made him even more bionic. Uh, people like David Bocking, who yep. is an incredible coach. People like Christina Melke from Sprout VC. Mm -hmm. That's another wonderful example. I mean, Christina is running a VC fund. She's coaching for the same reason we do it, because she's inside of companies diligencing in a way she could never do as a micro VC. The resources just don't work out that way. She has a competitive advantage that she has recognized. So she's helping, right? Mm -hmm. Helping is her due diligence. She's coaching and enabling and empowering these founders. She's also building relationships for her fund so that when she spots a winner, yep. she's going to get, Sprout's going to get selected for that investment opportunity. Right. It's a win-win right across the board. It, eh? it, it absolutely, it absolutely is. And again, it's it's even a deeper win-win because the the approach that Christine and Sprout are taking, the worst case outcome is I've helped you. Right. That's yeah. That's the worst case. It's not a couple of meetings, some coffees, and a no. Yeah. Right. And maybe not even a satisfying no, and a no with a no reason. When Christina and Sprout don't invest and Christina has worked through those or Shahil, her partner, have worked with these founders, it's very clear why it's a no or a not yet. And it's not even like it's a, a typical VC decision where we go off into our hallowed buildings and we have our hallowed Monday partner meeting and we come out and we pronounce who's getting funding and who's not. Right. 
it's a relationship that she is building with founders and founders know when the appropriate time even is to pitch and they know what she's going to be looking for because of what's missing and it happens more naturally and organically. That's very interesting. You know, and, and quite often we talk about in entrepreneurialism, uh, you know, failing fast. Some people may look at that as a failure, you know, oh, but it's, it's really, it's, it's a learning opportunity. How can they, it is. how can they refine their playbook and, and build on that to then become, that's right. Uh, you know, I mean, this is, this is where Bob Ross continues to teach us lessons, right? There are no, Bob mis- Ross, the painter. Yeah, yeah. No mistakes, just happy accidents. I like it. If you've learned from it, it's not a mistake. I mean, experience right. is what you get when you don't get what you want. I'm a very experienced person, <laughs> right? And so it's not just fail fast, yeah. it's fail forward. Fail forward, yeah. Right. Okay. I reserve the right to be less wrong tomorrow than I am today. That's my goal. And, and why the best founders are those that set aside their ego. Mm-hmm. They have an orientation towards winning. Like good scientists, they don't look to prove themselves right. They're just in search of the truth. Mm-hmm. They want to be market-informed. They want to be hypothesis-driven, right? Yeah. It, ultimately, that is what an early-stage startup is. It is a learning organization. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it, it is an experiment in search of a business model where that learning is what informs everything. So that insatiable curiosity for learning, which you see in any really good, true entrepreneur, yep. um, you know, someone um, who is always thinking about how something can be done differently or better. But again, it's not about being right. It's not about the ego. Um, it's about how do I get on a journey to learn and not just to get to a place, but to get there efficiently. Mm-hmm. Uh, because most founders don't have the luxury of gobs of time and money to waste, right? They have to get there efficiently. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at corporate innovation, and they're failing at a, even a higher rate than startups. Um, and um, they're failing for the same reasons. Uh, corporations have a lot of resources that they waste along in the journey. It takes them longer to fail, and they fall from a farther, a higher tree when they do. Founders typically don't have that luxury. Mm-hmm. We, we need to just get there. We also need to get there efficiently. Um, and so, again, following a sequential path. Um, but it's, 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 it's on us to do that because if the colleges and universities aren't teaching it, if the accelerators are focused on raising money, not making money, whose fault is it that these founders don't know how to do this? Why, right. why should they know how to do that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to talk to me a little bit about status quo and, and let me flesh this out a little bit. Uh, we, we had James Kierstead from Levin yep. Electronics yep. on yesterday's fantastic conversation yep. as this one is. And we, he was fleshing out this idea of the status quo for a quasi governmental organization. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to maintain that, that approach because if you're too adventurous Mm -hmm. or too creative and this would apply to any organization Mm -hmm. if you go outside of that those that that swim lane of what's expected you run the risk of failing now not everybody's going to look at it's failing forward so how do you get people and organizations to embody that that spirit of uh 
not just I'm going to drive and, and try something uninformed, but to try something that's maybe a little risky. Let's make status quo risky is, is what James said. And I loved that notion. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, listen, our, our world is focused on, on the founders, you know, who are building the great companies. Um, you know, we've, we've been involved in corporate innovation, both as partners individually in our careers and, and some of the stuff we used to do at GrowthX. You know, you know, it's, it's a complex, uh, question so it has a complex answer but to boil it down you know simply um, what gets measured gets done and so um, if you look inside of large organizations you know there there certainly has to be the culture and the appetite Mm -hmm. um, for risk and failure so that it is um, not um, you know I don't necessarily think you need to celebrate failure um, but you do have to have to understand that there's going to be um, a lot of trips along the way. And as long as you're learning and, and tripping and falling forward for corporations, you're obviously not going to put the, the, you know, the, the sacred cow, mm-hmm. um, the family jewels are not going to be where we're experimenting um, so that the, so that the failures are materially impacting the company. Um, but what gets measured gets done. I mean, often inside of big companies, um, innovation happens between P&Ls, and that's a dangerous place to be because what gets measured gets done. And when you're between P&Ls and the people who run those P&Ls aren't getting measured on your success, mm-hmm. and the amount of trailing zeros on their P&L make it impossible for them to focus on anything so small, where they're not going to get any credit if this goes well, but if it doesn't go well, they're certainly going to take a hit because yeah. they have key performance indicators, KPIs that they need to get done for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, innovation is definitely a hard thing to do inside of a company too because by its very nature, those that are drawn to it typically don't want to be institutionalized inside of a big corporation. Um, and so, you know, for those reasons and and for a variety of others and it's not impossible to do there are definitely companies that are doing extremely well but what you see and how they're doing it well is because it's it's top down it's coming from a president it's coming from a board Mm -hmm. um and the way that they've organized and incentivized um and enabled um cross-functional behaviors not silos um where there are real performance measurements around you know, um, scaling up the mountain and achieving, you know, some of those um, base camp milestones along the way um, and partnering with other organizations that can enable and help them to do it better. Um, You're seeing that happen. But certainly for for founders, you know, having it, you know, what your risk appetite is, Mm -hmm. is is a, a big part of enabling you to be a founder. Um, you know, there certainly is a lot of um, conscious bias. There certainly is a lot of prejudice that remains in this world. Um, but there's there's also some some just practical realities mm-hmm. of being a founder that make it relatively more difficult for certain people to participate in the opportunity to create wealth for themselves and their families because of that risk appetite. 
I'm, I'm a very privileged person. I come okay. from a privileged place. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I was even um, cognizant of, of myself as a human, mm-hmm. I had won you know, the, the two-parent lottery. I had won the zip code lottery. Um, you know, I had won a lot of lotteries before I even knew I was a, a, a human. Yeah. Um, and so if I do this and it doesn't work out, I'm not going to be on the street. My family's not going to be on the street. Um, I'm privileged to have an education. I'm privileged to have experience. And so if I need to, I can go get a job. Right. Um, I've been, I've, I have the opportunity to, to participate in the economy and create a credit and save money. And all of these things that we, you and I, as privileged people, take mm-hmm. for granted right. happen to be part of what makes it relatively and oftentimes absolutely more difficult for different types of people to be able to participate in this opportunity. Um, and so I think, you know, to, to your previous guest's point, I 100% agree. We need to be very thoughtful, intentional, though, about how we can, um, you know, spread out and, and enable people who've previously not been afforded the same things we have this is not a handout culture that we're talking about. This is not socialism that we're talking about. It is not a zero-sum game. I'm not taking from one to give to the other. Everything is better. Everything works better. And, and the data shows that your performance goes up, your value goes up. The, the more diversity, the more you respect the supply chain, mm-hmm. um, the differential between the most expensive and the least expensive person, um, these sustainability things... Um, sustainability is certainly not just an environmental choice. Yep. We're talking about making long-term, healthy, sustainable, nonviolent relationships that have proven to create better performance. And I don't think it takes a genius to understand why people are happier. They have more opportunity. We're, I mean, just from a, a, a woman perspective, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, roughly, if not a little more than 50% of the population that has not had the same opportunity to participate, extraordinary amount of talent that the global economy is just, you know, somehow, you know, talking politely at a cocktail party about being on the sidelines. Yeah. And so I think, you know, again, all these things have to come into the mix. Um, we, you know, we do the best we can from our perch and our small place at GrowthX, um, you know, we, you know, the fund that we're raising right now, in addition to focusing on founders in rising cities, in addition to focusing on founders where we have the insights that we need from programmatically helping them find product market fit, in addition to having local co-investors, which we require because it's better and it's necessary, we're also going to be biasing in favor of women founders. Okay. And again, just from a performance perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I strayed a little from your question. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's it, it, no, I, I loved it. I think there's, there's a lot of real, you offered a lot of really mindful and thoughtful perspectives, you know, and, um, a lot of organizations are becoming more like that, but it's not, it, it takes an active approach. You can't just go, oh yeah, that's kind of what we do. And, and then hope that inertia yeah, you know, takes amen. over, but amen. I mean, I, I, you know, I was just having this conversation with the founder yesterday, 
and it's it's one of the blessings of mm-hmm. being a founder. For us, it's not just the company you build, but the company you keep. You, exactly. Yeah. You you get to choose that as a founder. Why are you um, why are you missing this wonderful opportunity, what we consider to be a blessing, by not being more thoughtful about that? Um, deciding what the worldview is based yeah. on the founders and the team. What's the worldview of this company going to be? And put that out there and invite the people who share your worldview to nurture themselves towards you and give them opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. And for those that don't, you know, give them equal opportunity to nurture themselves away from you. You know, right. as long as they do it peacefully and, 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 and quickly, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, we, we want them to go in peace and yeah. be happy in their right. But I think what you're talking about there before, you're talking about brand. What I, I've always thought of a brand as the promise of experience. And whether that's your or my personal brand, mm-hmm. whether that's the brand of this podcast you run, whether it's startup, you know, Edmonton or Edmonton Unlimited or mm-hmm. the Alberta province or GrowthX, there is a promise of experience. And that means we have to communicate what we want to be held accountable to. And then and, and we ask and invite people to hold us accountable to that, recognizing that we're fallible and we'll make mistakes. But to know that we want to be held accountable to certain standards because collectively that does become our brand. Mm-hmm. And being aware that everything communicates. You know, I... Um, that's a great message, by the way, and and you've you've mentioned it a couple of times. Everything communicates. I I had, yeah. have to apologize for interjecting, no, please. but that's a really great Thank message to, to for people to take away from this. I um, it's <laughs> anybody who knows me hears it all the time. It's hard to have a conversation with me and not hear it. Um, it's it's um, it's something that I was taught by a dear friend of mine who worked for one of the greatest uh, chief marketing officers of all time, Sergio Zeman. And it's one of it's he he's he's the person who first said oh, that. Oh, okay. Um, and I, the second I heard it, I understood it, and I've picked it up and certainly made it my own. Um, it's so true, and it's so important because that ultimately. So for the founders that think that brand is something they need to be thinking about later, understand that that brand is going to happen whether you like it or not. Do you want to be intentional and thoughtful and live up to that brand that you want to represent your promise of experience? Or do you want it to be something else? Because everything communicates. You are getting a brand. You and I are getting a brand every time we talk with someone. Right. Everything that we say, everything we do, everything we don't do, everything we don't say, everything we do communicates. You can't not communicate. That's the corollary. Those things add up to your brand. And so you need to be thoughtful and intentional about that because we are always communicating. Mm -hmm. And by the way, for founders going to market, the market is also always communicating. And it's not just when you're looking for customers what they've written on their website or what they may have told you in a conversation. You have to do your research. You have to be attuned and have this professional catharsis Mm -hmm so that you're aware of the signals that you should be looking for and understanding how to um, uh, read them and analyze them because everything communicates, right? Right. A, a, an easy example that we always use, 
um, for founders that are always looking for early adopters because that's what founders need to do because the only people that do business with startups are definitionally early adopters. Nobody else does business with unproven things. And so, well, you know, Andrew, like, I, you know, it's not like someone's website says I'm an early adopter. No, that's true. But if you're selling to a company, do they have a corporate venture capital unit? Because early adopters are looking for startups to work with. Have they acquired startups before? Do they participate in? Do they uh, sponsor accelerators? Um, do they speak at conferences on the subject? Do they have a blog that um, is active? When you, when you go to a company's website and their last blog on the blog site is two years old, yeah. chances are they may not be as much of an early adopter, right? They are communicating to you that they are an early adopter. Um, and by the way, it's not just the company, the people within the company, right? Because mm -hmm. companies don't buy, people do. And so when you're looking for the person that you want to speak to, who is blogging personally a lot? Who is updating their LinkedIn a lot? Who is being invited and speaking at conferences a lot? Because people who are passionate, the early adopters who are passionate and are innovative and try new things, this is how they behave. So this person is communicating without saying, I am an early adopter. Right, yeah. Jeez, that's, you're blowing my mind, Andrew. <laughs> no, this is great. You know, Thank and it, you. It, it's interesting because as you talk about this, you know, I'm going, well, yeah, of course, that makes so much sense, but it's nothing that I've necessarily intellectualized, you know, but then as you start to flesh it out, I'm like, yeah, wow. It And, and that is it. And for our founders that get, ask, I mean, I hope you have some of the founders that go through the revenue seller on the program. They're going to say the same thing you just did. Like, oh, I, I hit my head. It's like, right. oh my goodness, this is so obvious. Like, how could I not have realized... Yeah, none of what we're doing is 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 rocket science. It's mm -hmm. it's not even long division. I mean, it is not <laughs> complex. Mm -hmm. But if you're not oriented towards it, if nobody's teaching you or helping you think about it this way, it's in front of you and you've missed it. When I started this journey of entrepreneurship, I knew the stats for the numbers of businesses that actually survived were low and thought I would be one of the elites to make it. I started strong, but as I wade in the weeds, I'm realizing that I need support, funding, and outside perspective to help me strategically roadmap my journey. I need help. Alberta Innovates is here to help. Come talk to us. Right, right. That's absolutely, it's, it's, it's really very cool. Now I have to say, um, for our listeners, Andrew's got a number of programs coming up today. Yeah. We're at 10 to 10 now. Yeah. I can go on. I can go on. Oh, you're good? Yeah. We're I'm good not, for time. Yeah, I, I think my uh, workshop's at 11. Okay. And I think well, it's... Right next to perfect. Right, right out well, the window I'm looking through. If you're good, I'd like to chat for a bit more. Let's keep going. Cool. Um, now, you know, you were talking earlier about a privileged position as, you know, I come from as well. Can we get a little more, uh, you know, uh, personal about it? I, sure. Because, you know, when we first started talking, you, you said you had been in Asia mm -hmm. for a while and you were taking this uh, train in Palo Alto when mm -hmm. you had the epiphany for Growth X. Um to become, you know, this venture capitalist. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as soon as someone hears venture capitalist, they yeah. think, well, this 
this person's got some some fat stacks to deal with. <laughs> yeah. So how and you've obviously got you know a great amount of experience and wisdom. Where where did all this come from? Well, so I mean, yeah, I you know um, I don't know about the wisdom, the experience I certainly have. As <laughs> that I leads said. to wisdom. Um, I definitely have wisdom too from from just the the longitude of of time. Right as we get older, right, you, you and I have earned our gray hairs. Hey, don't look at me. <laughs> <laughs> We've earned our gray hairs. There's definitely mm-hmm. wisdom in age. Um, you know, the, the youth definitely is wasted on the young. Um, <laughs> Hallelujah! Yeah, by the way, I, I've just been very fortunate um, in that I've had a bit of a nonlinear path. Um, I've paid attention along the journey, and and I've had people for reasons that sometimes I'm just not even sure have taken a liking to me mm-hmm. and have shared their wisdom because they saw something in me that reminded them of who they were when they were my age at the time. And they were willing to to give me a little of their time and their attention, and I've I've benefited my whole life from mentors, um, you know, people that literally changed my world, mm-hmm. people that that don't even know they're a mentor of mine. That said, they said something they thought was they probably I'm sure never even remember saying it to me. Right. And it's not always just those that that sat there and regularly worked with me as a mentor. There are people that, in a certain situation, gave me a perspective that I didn't have before. That was a gift. Feedback is a gift. Right. Yeah. Um, and so um, they gave me that gift. And I've just always, and I don't know why, but I've always been um, very thoughtful about those gifts and paying attention to them and internalizing them. I've, I've never had much of an ego that way. I, I am the first, as my wife and daughters will tell you, I'm the first person to apologize. I apologize a lot in my house because I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> but I apologize. Um, I recognize it. I listen to the feedback and I get better. It's always been my approach. I've, mm-hmm. I've never, never had a problem admitting I was wrong. And I've never had a problem taking advice from somebody because I, I always, you know, feedback is given as a gift. It's with yep. love. And so I just, I was in, I, with that, I just went on this nonlinear journey and I, you know, I've always been, um, you know, you know, probably more thoughtful about decisions that I'm making, um, and why I'm making them and, 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 you know, being maybe, you know, even at times in as youth intense about my focus. Yeah. And that's, by the way, a double-sided coin that can be a real turnoff. And it certainly was for a lot of people when I was younger, but, um, you know, when I was, I, I started my career as a lawyer. Okay. So I'm a recovering lawyer right now. <laughs> um, and, you know, um, I came out of law school when the internet was first commercializing. Mm-hmm. And so I just got lucky because my brother, you know, was very involved in the internet. He was running a bulletin board out of our basement in the early 80s oh, wow. in Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. And so through my brother, I knew how the internet worked. Mm-hmm. And when I came out of law school, most people didn't know how the internet worked, and very few lawyers, even today, <laughs> but seriously, at that mm-hmm. time, very few lawyers knew how the internet worked. Right. And because I knew how the internet worked, I was able to start getting involved as a lawyer that didn't have any idea how to be a lawyer in things that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to do, and I loved it because I was passionate about this subject. And so I just, 
I recognized that. I recognized how lucky I was based on the timing to be coming out of law school when this thing was happening. The internet was commercializing, and I knew more about it than a lot of other lawyers, even though I didn't know anything about being a lawyer. And I used that to my advantage. Um, and and that you know took me on a, a really fun ride. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up joining a company called DoubleClick, um, which ultimately got acquired by Google and you okay. know, formed the basis of, of how Google you know initially made all of its money. That was its advertising engine. That's DoubleClick. Um, wow. And and then interestingly enough, I was you know just fortunate enough to get connected to the Thompson family here in Canada. Um, uh, I, I, I was given an opportunity to start working for them um, as they were beginning to operate more of the portfolio of companies that they had previously held and start thinking about from a portfolio theory how these different companies could be operating um, with a lot of adjacencies. And so um, I went into Thompson Financial mm-hmm. um, doing sophisticated fintech transactions because sophisticated transactions is what I knew how to do. Um, and that was a very interesting time for the Thompson, you know, uh, family of companies, um, Woodbridge Corporation. Um, and um, I, again, fortunate because of my, quote, new media background to be staffed on a deal for the Thompsons to renegotiate a license with Dow Jones. Okay. Um, unlike Bloomberg at the time, the Thompsons um, didn't own a critical part of their workflow solution, which is a lesson learned. They outsourced it through licensing to people like Dow Jones. Where I Bloomberg, don't know what that means. So what? Bloomberg has Bloomberg News. So Bloomberg yep, has yep. financial terminals. Bloomberg serves the financial markets. They have proprietary news. At the time, Thompson did not have proprietary news. Uh, okay. They licensed news. So if you were a Thompson customer and you were a banker or a trader, it was obviously critical to have news. That news didn't come from Thompson. Uh, it came okay. through Thompson mm. from people like Dow, companies like Dow Jones. And so when we renegotiated that deal, it was a very tough renegotiation because Dow Jones had all the bargaining power. For sure. And a small group um, at Thompson Financial basically said, well, how difficult would it be to just start our own news business? And so Thompson's made a very courageous decision to, to in, invite Dow Jones to, to leave the platform. <laughs> <laughs> and we started Thompson Financial News. And so that's when I officially hung up my legal hat um, and became head of news strategy and operations. Um, and that led to us buying Reuters. Um, and that's so when we became Thompson Reuters, um, I became the publisher of Reuters News. And in the process, I had made an acquisition of a set of news bureau in Asia and, and moved, had the opportunity to move my family to Hong Kong to do Thompson Financial News Asia. Um, and when the Reuters deal settled through antitrust and we became Thompson Reuters, obviously Thompson Financial News was immediately folded into Reuters, one of the most storied financial, you know, storied mm-hmm. news institutions in the history of the world. Um, and um, I decided to stay in Asia because it was a better place to innovate um, relative to the United States or London. Um, especially at a, a company like Thomson Reuters and with, you know, the, you know, the Reuters news agency and how it was organized and, mm-hmm. the, and, the, and the Writers Guild. And, and just Asia is also a, it was, again, more of just a pioneering place. So we were able, okay. so that, when I became publisher of Reuters News, my, what I wanted to do with that position was to um, 
bring the voice of the customer mm-hmm. into the newsroom and innovation. You know, I became publisher about the same time as Twitter was founded. And, and I, again, because I had had this history that I was lucky to have, having been a lawyer when the internet was first commercializing and having been at some of the earliest pioneers as their lawyer, yep. um, I had a perspective that I wouldn't have otherwise probably had. And so I was able to see early um, among a group of people who saw early this impact that Twitter and, and, and entering what we would, would, would call the age of information, mm-hmm. um, what would that what impact that would have on the most storied news institution in the history of the world? And um, and so we brought the voice of the customer in, and we did innovation, and I did that over in Asia for many years. Um, and then, yeah, it was it was just time to come back to the United States. And so that nonlinear journey. And by the way, there's certainly. I mean, I've I've been working my whole life. I yeah. mean, I was a newspaper boy you know, delivering newspapers, you know, when I was, you know, 12 years old. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of jobs and a lot of internships. I went to the University of Cincinnati, which invented the co-op program. Oh. And so cooperative education, uh, it was, you know, that's where it was founded. Um, and so even through college, every other quarter I was working in a job, um, you know, working for the U.S. Congress, uh, working as a financial analyst for IBM in a s- semiconductor fabrication plant. Like, this cooperative opportunity at the University of Cincinnati gave me, and and put that together with all these other nonlinear opportunities I've had, it just set me up so that when I came back to the United States, I was away for a long time, and I knew that if I was ever going to go out and do something truly entrepreneurial on my own, that was the time. If I transferred back to the United States with Thomson Reuters I just didn't think it was going to happen and I've had that fire in my belly I was privileged to do entrepreneurial things inside of that company but I wanted to do something you know as I said when I left the company it's been a privilege to make money for the Thomson family Mm -hmm. it's time to make money for the Goldner family right Right. fascinating (laughs) you know I I quickly thinking about going back to the whole notion of status quo there's two times that the status quo is kind of blown out there yeah with uh you know your the Thomson when it became Thomson Reuters yeah you guys decided to do not maintain the status quo for sure not you know and then you being gainfully employed and having quite a bit of success with them deciding that nope it's time to do this for the goldner family yeah you know and it was i mean again a tough I, decision i'm sure a very tough decision but again you know it's it's never been that difficult for me to do that throughout my whole life i've i've been able to make those decisions you know mm-hmm. when i when i did that and I had good friends at Thomson Reuters, um, and it was it was a privileged privileged seven years that I was with Thomson. Um, I learned a ton. I met amazing people, people who had an out and still have an influence on me that they may not even know they have. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember when I when I I left, I resigned. There was all this jealousy, and I was like, "Well, you can quit your job too." Like it's <laughs> right. I mean, the you know, shackles aren't uh... you can quit right like mm-hmm. so like oh i you know i wish i could do that well i mean i know these these people i'm talking about are privileged like i am these are these are experienced people yeah. these are smart people um if if they quit and it didn't work out they would get a job somewhere um right and so but 
um, yeah, again, like it, it was courageous. It, it did, it did take courage. And I, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I have that kind of just decision-making and willpower. I, I always have, I didn't, you know, wake up one morning and do it. Uh, you know, I have a family, I'm responsible, yep. but, um, you know, that risk tolerance, that risk profile, you know, I'm actually, you know, happier with the high risk than, than with low risk. Um, but you know, again, that's all relative. You know, for me, I, I knew what my worst case scenario was going to be, mm-hmm. and it didn't include being homeless. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's that's huge. Okay? It's, it's enormous. Yeah. And so, and oh, by the way, like just the you know the experience of of living in a different society mm-hmm. for so many years, and I think especially important for Americans um, to 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 get outside of America. Um, you know, travel on holiday is one thing, but you know, really. In, integrating into a different community and 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 seeing the different ways things can be done um and surprisingly you know dare i say you know even better um in many regards Mm -hmm. um and 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 you know and then come back and, and and try to do my part you know at home so you know all that um the the you know what we're really talking about is 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 just continually putting yourself outside of your comfort zone yeah, because I love that, it. That's where the learning takes place. Yeah, and that's that that you know the personal brand, everything communicates, and uh, you know this this has been a fantastic conversation. I thank you. I I, I want to go back and talk about you know the definition of things. Oh and, yeah, we didn't get I, to that. I just I, I feel like you know that we've hit the top of the mountain, but you know in in a per, in one trajectory of the conversation of that personal stuff I, it's fantastic and I'm, well, I appreciate I'm, it i'm happy to come back anytime i really appreciate the opportunity to be on your show and i mean that and i'm happy to do it anytime you want what i would also say to your listeners you know um we also have a continuum of resources on the website you know growthx.com/blog yep. this is not your typical blog these are multimedia resources that are practical, tactical, and there's there's playbooks you can download, there's templates you can download, there's step-by-step instructions, there's videos to enable you to do the things you need to do to be a successful entrepreneur. So we didn't get to cover the definition of product market fit, but if you go to growthx.com slash blog, you're going to see a blog that walks you through in specific detail the five very specific and objective things you need to accomplish to have product market fit. There is a, um, a, a an ICP starter kit, Ideal Customer Profile Starter Kit, which is the most critical first step any entrepreneur can take once they have their MVP. And it's a video of my partner Max, an hour, telling you about ICP, going through the ICP exercise, using a company in our portfolio as an example. And then there is a template to download for you to do that work. And it comes with an invitation from us, which is don't send us your pitch deck. Mm-hmm. Send us the work you're doing to go to market and let us help you. And that is how we will begin to get to know each other. You don't even know if I should get your pitch deck, right? Right. I, you know, remember that nightclub, you know, let, yep. me, let, me, let me get onto it. And then, of course, yeah, the Albert Innovates Revenue Accelerator. It's the thing we're most privileged to do here in the province. Um, growthx.com slash T-A-I-R-A, which just stands for the Albert Innovates Revenue Accelerator. It's full transparency. It's everything you need to know. The platform we talked about, MXP mm-hmm. Online, any of your listeners through a click of a button can have full access to it. Check out what it is. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Look at it. Start using it. See if it's something you think that could be helpful. You can download the full curriculum. There's tons of FAQs. And most importantly, there's the words of the founders who have gone through it, um, who have benefited, not because we're smarter, but because I think we care more and because we've created a pr- system and a program to enable great coaches like Christina and David and Rick and others um, to to work alongside you. So we do hope founders avail themselves of that. There's a lot of great programs in this province. We're mm-hmm. not in competition with any of them. Plug and Play here doing amazing, amazing work in AI. 500 Startups, Alchemist with their focus. These yeah. are great scale-up programs. Founders are choosing GrowthX not in place of, not in competition to, but when they're ready to prioritize going to market, that's when they're choosing GrowthX. Right on. So... Uh, an incredible pleasure to have you on, Andrew. Thank and you. Yes, I will this get you wonderful. on again very soon. Good. Uh, you've got lots going on today as part of uh, Edmonton Startup Week. Look forward to checking more of that out. And you heard it from Andrew himself. Check out all those resources. And we'll talk real soon. Thank you. Very grateful to be here. My pleasure. Thank you very much for listening into Shift today. And thank you very much to Andrew Goldner for being our guest. You can find Shift online at shift.albertainnovates.ca or email us at shift at albertainnovates.ca. Until next time, I'm John. Take it easy. Have a great day.